Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on June 4th, 2017 at Max Fish House in Provincetown, Massachusetts. The event was a benefit for the 30th annual Swim for Life, which raises money for AIDS, women's health, and the Provincetown community. The theme for the evening was staying afloat. This is the first storyteller of the evening. So a very brave woman is stepping up and uh, let's give her a huge supportive round of applause. At random, right? Hmm. Well, my story is about uh, achieving my education financially. So I am first generation Irish. It doesn't show a bit, does it? I try to wear this so it wouldn't show. But when we were raised, that when I was six, I was indentured for the first time. So we use the term indentured. So I went to my godmother's house, which was easier, and you were to make your tuition and your shoes. The rest would be taken care of for you. So making my tuition. There I went, six years old. Um, I think they came down and picked me up. I have a pretty good memory, but you know, that's a detail. And I learned that summer how to pick mushrooms, Amelia Meliala, and that's what I called it, but it was Amarilla Melia. But I was six, and I, my godmother had married an Italian. He played the accordion for us at night. We had wonderful music. He taught me to read music. His mother, Nonna, because he was Pasquale. They called him Patsy. And, and I asked him, why you call Patsy? Your name means Easter. And he wondered how a six-year-old knew, knew it, right? First grade. Little Flower School, you knew the Missa De Angelis in Latin and knew what you were singing by the end. So I had tuition, okay, 25 cents a week. <laughs> and so Nona taught me how to plant garlic. She had 800 beds of garlic and it went on and on. And I was best friends with the five-year-old son of my godmother who adored me. And I had a wonderful summer. The next summer, I went to Pittsfield. I learned how to, they raised beagles, these friends of my father's. And they had um, gardens and plants, and I learned how to do all the gardening and sell the vegetables with them. And the second year, I went there too. So there I am, six, seven, eight, I'm in Pittsfield again. And they taught me freshwater fishing. All these things have stayed with me all my life. All these things that people have taught me. So then came the next year, and there was no job. Oh, I had a free summer, and I, I didn't know. So I went to the Charlestown pool. I'm born in Boston, raised in Charlestown. Went to the pool, learned diving, joined all the competitions, did all the swimming, went to the girls' club, sang in all the shows. And uh, I had the cart, I realized, the wheelbarrow that I had when I got back after the first year, the rag man saved for me a wheelbarrow because I used to save rags, bottles, cans, everything. And then 
five cents a pound, take them out to him on Saturday morning when he'd come down with, tuk -tuk, tuk -tuk, tuk -tuk. and so I'd know he was there. We didn't know any English except for my name. And little Kelly, little Kelly, that's of course called, I'm the youngest. And I, the wheelbarrow was the other part of the 10th summer too, to go around from house to house to get everything. That was my second job. Okay, then came age 11 and I went to my mother's family in, uh, my mother's born in Mayo, my father in Galway. So being first generation, you have to be pruned up. Nobody's going to be there to take care of you if there's a problem with the family, so you have to learn. So I went to their house, and I was in charge of three children under three years old at the age of 11. Can you imagine today? I had to do everything in the diapers and all. My cousin Tom, who would be, let's see, my mother Agnes was named for his mother, Aunt Agnes. And he was stern, he was a lawyer, he had a real estate company. His parents came from Ireland, he's first generation, and they raised six children, everybody got their college education. Daddy Jack, with the three pieces of hair that he put over his head, he used to take the wax off the candle or the soap or something, <laughs> and smoke his pipe, he was a sweetheart. Okay, so that was 11. And I went every weekend into the law office and went for the weekend to work. I'd take the train and go, and my cousin would. But he was rough. He was always correcting and criticizing. So I told my mother, I'm not going back there. OK. She said, she won't come back. All right. So the next year, I went to Marblehead, my mother's great aunt Gertrude that she went to in Swampscott. And I was with this family that was not in any way related to us, the Quigleys. Four boys, all dressed in blue t-shirts and blue shorts, and all acting exactly right. And I was there for the weekend, and I was told, you can have an hour and a half off, and you can, uh, we'll see you in an hour and a half. Do I go to the rocky shore of Marblehead and watch the tides come in, or do I go downtown? I could go to the drugstore and have a root beer. I did both. I was late. I lost the job. <laughs> oh, sorry, Quigleys. I lost the job. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, Jesus, we didn't even get to where I worked in the laundromats at the First National with my, with my seven friends. We are still together. We went to 13 years of school together, two of us born in the hospital together. We, we went to work at the First National. So they put us in the laundromat. And we're doing, you know, the aprons. And so the, the mangles are as big as this room. And you put 10 in, and the person on the other side folds 10. After 10, you move to the other side. Three people are up here on stage, and they do the piecework for the butchers. And they're walking around, and they're like this sweating three presses put down. Open it up, put the sleeve in, get to the next one, open it up, put the sleeve in, get to the third one, open it up, put the sleeve in, and then they go back around here to the water. They have a jar of water, jar of water, cigarette, and three more. So I said, oh, this is so boring. So I took my apron that I was putting in and leaned, Maggie is next to me. She's the quietest of the seven. I called her Goldie. 
silence is golden. And Leany Babes is on the other side, Eileen Marie Doyle, Leany Babes Kookaburra, I name everybody. And so I put a, I took a big help, H-E-L-P, exclamation point, and I put it in the mangle. And I said, Maggie was like this. And I said, oh, sorry, she's so vulnerable. She'll see it. The mangle. It got through to Leany Babes. Leany Babes started screeching, stop the mangle, stop the mangle. Somebody's in there, somebody's in there. So the manager came over and he said, what? They had to stop the mangle and everything stopped. And reluctantly, the three stars on the stage stopped. <laughs> and Leany Babes, there's somebody in there. Look at this. So the manager walked around to the other side of the mangle on the other side of Leany Babes. And he looked and he said, um, mm -hmm. OK, Kelly, you can go uh, take your papers. I was out. Then I went and I worked in a car wash. That was a whole other story. I'm over with this now. Can I keep going? I was, I thought, no. oh, don't stop. Okay. So I left there and I went over to the Greek restaurant where everybody goes. You know, over to the Greek restaurant where everybody goes uh, before they go in the first national. And I told them the story on and on. Okay, we have a guest storyteller coming up here. Came up special. Our delightful, wonderful, actually kind of co-producer. Uh, and I also want to say quickly, 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 that when we started four years ago, this person came out and was just rocking the mosquito slam and then went home at the end of the summer and started his own theater company and his own story slam. And it's amazing because his theater company, the Nomadic Theater Company, and the Nomadic Story Slams, thank you. They, uh, they're this floating theater. They go from bars to barns to houses to, it's, it's incredible. They take one play and they just float it all over the place. So I'm a huge fan of his, a Jerry Riley. And I'm a huge fan of theirs as well. Um, so about eight years ago, I'll get this up, that's good. About eight years ago, we moved to, uh, I'm just going to take this right off. No? About eight years ago, we moved to uh, town Newton, just outside of Boston. And it's, you know, very uh, wealthy sub suburb right outside of Boston. And, uh, but the little corner of Newton we moved to, it's called Upper Falls. It's a little different than the rest of Newton. It doesn't look like the rest of Newton, and it's not quite like the rest of Newton. So we bought this house. Uh, we were conscious that across the street was a derelict house, and the guy who lived there is kind of a derelict guy, and he's you know, grew, you know, lived there his whole life. And the day we moved in, um, we pulled up the street, and there were like five 50-something-year-old guys out on, on Rudy's front yard. They got a bench sheet from a pickup truck out there, a case of beer, and uh, that was sort of our greeting when we pulled up. One of the guys jumped up before I even got out of the car. He came, come running over, big guy with a big smile on his face. He says, how you doing? I'm Johnny. Welcome to the neighborhood. And that was when I met Johnny Golden. Um, so we moved in, and uh, uh, anytime I saw Johnny, he didn't live there. Rudy lived in the house, but Johnny was one of the regular boys who used to you know, hang out there. 
anytime I saw Johnny, he would come up and, uh, you know, he would always come and say hello and gab and he'd always say, uh, you know, you need any work done. You need a painter. You need car. I do carpentry. You want, I, may, I can even do masonry, a little bit of it. And, you know, you need anything. I'm your man, you know. So after about three months, we were going to uh, uh, paint my daughter's bedroom. And I said to my wife, why don't we have Johnny do this? It's, you know, it's kind of a low risk thing if he botches it. It's not a big deal, and uh, if he does a good job, we get a handyman across the street, and you know, I'm sure he'll uh, be, be, give us a good price. So we hired Johnny, and uh, he was delighted. So he shows up the next morning, all his paint stuff, and uh, I you know, bring him upstairs, set him up, and uh, he says, you have any music? He goes, I, gotta, I love having music when I work. And I said, yeah, me too. I, I, like, I work down, at home downstairs. I said, yeah, I got, a, I got an iPod that plays all day. And uh, let me get you this little box. You just plug it in, and you'll get my iPod feed. It's just on, you know, shuffle all day. Oh, that'd be great, man. So I give it to him. I go down to work, and I'm working with the music, you know, kind of, you know, gentle lobe thing. He's upstairs with the same music cranked up, and no matter what song comes on my iPod, he is singing his heart out at the top of his lungs. He's whistling. He's humming. And he's just a man happy at his work. Well, Johnny did a great job. Fabulous painter, uh, charges next to nothing, and he was a pleasure to have around the house. So uh, he became our go-to handyman, and uh, you know, he used to do odd jobs around there. Now, aside from that, my daughter, who was like six at the time, uh, Johnny, Johnny was like Mr. Music, and he heard that she was taking piano lessons. He says, oh, you gotta let me come talk to the kid. He always called her the kid. I don't think he ever knew her name. Um, and so he comes in, oh, you could, piano is the best thing. You know, there's every kind of piano you can play. There's the classical piano and the jazz piano. Boogie woogie, you ever hear that? He's going, but rock and roll piano. There's this guy, Jerry Lee Lewis. He'd play with his elbows. It's wild. And my daughter, like, she didn't know what to make of Johnny, but she, kind of, she likes him. She likes the attention, but she's kind of like, it's like a wild animal, you know? So Johnny was kind of coming and going all the time, and he comes over, you know, not too long afterwards, and he says, I'm going to make a swing set for the kid. And he, he's got this load of lumber, and it's, you know, it's not pressure treated. It's just like raw pine. He dumps <laughs> it in the yard, and I'm like, go ahead, have at it. And he makes this swing set like you have never seen a swing set. It's like all kind of cockeyed or whatever, but it was rock solid. Jayla loved it, and, and that was it. So anyway, about a year later, you know, we had him doing odd jobs. I come home one day. He says, um, you, you know, you need a paint job. The whole house, got, I'll, I'll do it for you. And I said, I know, Johnny, it's getting a little shabby, but I, I don't have the money right now. He starts badgering me. And I said, okay, how about, you know, the trim needs a little, you, could, you know, how about you do the trim? No, man, I'll do the whole house. I'll give you a good price. Well, he just wears me down. And eventually I say, all right, fine. So Johnny starts painting the back of the house. He paints like one side of the house. And it's springtime. And just like this spring, it starts raining. And once it starts, it does not stop. It just rains for like a week. So I've forgotten all about Johnny. It's Friday morning. The sun's starting to peek out. And I get a phone call. Jared's Johnny. Um, I was going to start painting today, but I, I, I don't feel good. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of sick and uh, maybe a little hungover. I just don't feel good. And uh, I said, that's fine, Johnny. You know, whatever you are, no hurry. And he says, uh, you get any aspirin? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, I'm over at Rudy's. And I said, well, just come over and ring the bell. Uh, you, you think you could bring it over? And I'm thinking, like, what the hell is this? He says, uh, I think I'm having a heart attack. I freak out, I jump up, I run upstairs, I grab a bottle of aspirin and go charging across the street. Now, I've never been in a Rudy's house, um, but I open the door and I yell, nobody answers, and I go in and it is a scene in there. 
Um, I go all the way through the house, and way in the back of the house, there's Johnny lying on a couch, looking like hell. He's kind of gray and sweaty. He looks terrible. And I say, Johnny, let me call you an ambulance. No, man, don't, don't do that. Don't, no, no. I, I, I just have a, a flu. I, I threw up. I threw up, and I, I, I just have a flu. And I say, we, I, I, you, you, let's, you, what are you talking about, flu? You said a heart attack. No, no, no. I, I, I said, I, I, get a, I just threw up. I got a flu. And I said, well, well, why did you say a heart attack? Well, I had this little pain. I thought maybe, but I realized I pulled my thing yesterday. I'm saying, Johnny, I, I don't feel good about this. We got to keep you afloat, man. Let, how about the, let, let me take you to the emergency room? Uh, no, I'm not going to the emergency room. And he's just adamant. Um, so I'm like, all right, well, you know, the phone's right there. I'm across the street. Give a call if you need anything. Um, so I go home and uh, I'm working all day. And it's like Friday, so about three o'clock. The boys turn up across the street. They got their case of beer. They're hanging out. Johnny's not out there. I figure, oh, he must still be sick. So about 6 o'clock, friends of ours coming for dinner. They show up, they come in, they sit down, we're talking, and the doorbell rings. I go to the door, and it's Rudy. He's blind drunk, and he's out of his mind. Johnny's fucking dead! Give me a phone! And I grab my phone, I dial 911, I give it to him. Now he's drunk, and he's on the, with the 911 operator. He's screaming at the 911. They're screaming back and forth, and then he hands me the phone. And I, and I put the, the operator saying, you have to check the body. I said, I, I, I live across, I'm just a neighbor. I don't care who you are. Go in the house and check the body. The ambulance is on the way. I'm freaking out. I go across the street, past the boys there, into the house. I go all the way to the back, and Johnny is there, and he is stone cold dead. Um, I come out. I, I tell the operator, she says, the ambulance is on the way. I come out of this house in a daze past the boys across the street and I'm just going into the house, my house, and I, I, I'm just kind of reeling and the ambulance flies around the corner, there's two police cars behind it and then all of a sudden there is a scene, there's two police cars, five drunk guys, a dead body, it's a, it's a bad scene. The guys are yelling at the cops, the cops are getting all freaked out and, and you know angry. Just then another neighbor who knows these guys, he grew up with them, he happens to come around the corner in his car, sees what's going on, he jumps out and kind of takes the whole thing down and you know, gets the cops, I'll get these guys out of here, you better get them out of here, somebody's gonna get arrested, and he gets, gets the guys up off site and sort of lures them up to his house with promises of beer. Um, it was the most insane five minutes of my life, it was just unbelievable, and over the next days, of course, there were lots of, you know, coulda, woulda, shouldas, um, connected with this. Uh, John, I mean, Johnny died young. He died at 52. He had a lot of miles on him, but um, he was a good guy. He was a ball of positive energy, and not just like he was always positive, but he kind of spread that energy to everybody around him. And uh, you know, in the words of one of the, one of the many bands Johnny loved, uh, Pink Floyd, uh, shine on you crazy diamond, rest in peace, Johnny Golding. Okay, please welcome to the stage, Dawn. Dawn. First time storyteller at the Mosquito. Welcome. Thank you. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, so last year, September, one day before the Swim for Life, I decide I'm going to do it. My friend Kate says, uh, but you haven't even trained. I'm like, correct, I have not. My friend Beth says, do you even know how to swim? I'm like, sorta. 
Um, I never did get the knack of the freestyle, that breathing side to side, it's very awkward. But I'm good at the strokes, the breast stroke, the side stroke, the back stroke, and really, really good at the dog paddle. <laughs> oh my God, says my friend Kate, who's an accomplished swimmer, you're not doing this alone, I'm swimming with you. And I'm gonna be in the kayak next to you, says Beth. All right, great, we're gonna have a good old time. And just so you know, my goal is to be the last one across the finish line. <laughs> because I did read in the paper, the last one out of the water gets a free massage. Yeah, that was my motivation. So I wake up the next morning feeling good. I'm gonna swim across the harbor today. I, sun is shining, there's no wind, water's calm. I put on my blue and white uh, striped bikini, slip on a sundress hop on my beach cruiser, bike to the boat slip. I meet Kate there. We change into our wetsuit, right? We get our swim number, drink some water, eat a bagel, hop on the taxi, go to Long Point. Um, the excitement there is palpable, right? Hundreds of people are gathering. The seasoned swimmers are giving advice to newbies like me. Best advice I get is when you hear the starting horn, just stay back out of the fray. You know, let everybody get in and do their craziness. When the chaos subsides, then get in. Take your time, no hurry. I'm thinking, great, my goal is to be the last one across, so that's good advice for me. So I do, I take my time. By the time I get in, it seems like a certain amount of people are already halfway across the harbor. No worries, I get in, start my breaststroke. <laughs> I'm like, I got it, I'm gliding, I'm moving forward in the groove. I'm like, all right, I got this. I can get my way across with the breaststroke. So I do this for a little while, and I am moving forward, but I notice that my friend Kate is like yards and yards ahead of me, and she's not even swimming. <laughs> she's like floating like she's on the lazy river, talking casually to Beth. Meanwhile, I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> so I'm like, all right, time for the side stroke. In that moment, I would swear to you, I knew how to do the side stroke. <laughs> Apparently, I did not. I am like this. <laughs> like, my arms and my legs aren't working together. It's kind of like this thing. I just, like, I can't do it. I'm like, shit, I thought I knew how to do this, but I don't. So, backstroke, backstroke. I flip on my back and start doing the backstroke and it's working. My arms and legs are working together. I'm like looking up at the bright blue sky. I'm like, sweet, found my sweet spot. This is it, this is my stroke. I start to really work it. I'm like, I bet I'm passing Kate at this very moment. Working, working. Dawn, you're going the wrong way. What? I, get, I look up, <laughs> sure enough, I'm swimming back to Long Point, straight back to Long Point. I'm like, oh my God. Okay, back to the breaststrokes, the only thing I got. So I flip over, I start breaststroking, only to realize that all that time on my back without having my eyes on the horizon, I am wicked seasick. I'm like nauseous, I'm dizzy, I feel like I'm gonna throw up. The movement of the breaststroke is just too much. So I'm like, oh my God. Enter the dog paddle. 
So I get myself a little vertical in the water and I start dog paddling, but I'm really kind of doing this hybrid in that I'm like dog paddling with my hands, my feet are doing like the breaststroke move, right? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, this is working. Like I'm actually, I can feel myself moving forward. I'm not quite as nauseous. And then I see for the first time the ginormous orange banner at the boat slip, right? And I get it. I was like, that's where you need to go. <laughs> go that way. <laughs> and it's like I realized, okay, that's my horizon. I've got to keep my eyes on the big orange banner. Cannot talk. Dog paddle. Just keep dog paddling. Just keep dog paddling. So Bet and Kate notice that like I'm in a little bit of trouble. So they're like trying to help me. Kate's like just relax, just like stop, just bob for a little while, take a breath, he's like, no. <laughs> Beth is like, come on, I'll get in the kayak, I'll take a rest, or at least hold on to the kayak, no. So stubborn, dogged, if you will. I am determined to get across the harbor with no assistance and without stopping. Like, just keep dog paddling, just keep dog paddling. So this, of course, is all very slow going for Kate and Beth. So they're trying to engage me in conversation, so sick, cannot talk. So they start singing. Ah! It's just like the noise. It's like, um, it's like audible movement. It's like making me feel sicker, but I can't tell them to stop. So I'm like trying to mind meld with them. I'm like, stop talking, stop singing. Shh. And then I'm like giving them stink eye, like, mm, mm. Finally, they get it and they, they stop talking, they stop singing. I'm like, thank God. So. I, um, so I'm going, and it's working, right? And I realize, though, that I'm actually getting more and more vertical, and my legs are not doing this anymore. They're actually doing this. I'm like, Jesus, I'm walking through the water. I'm, like, walking, and it's working. Like, the banner's getting bigger. I'm getting closer. The water's getting shallower until that moment where I'm not just walking through the water. I'm walking on the sand, and I stumble out onto the beach. And there's the uh, Swim for Life volunteer clocking my time, calling for help. Clearly, I need some help. Another volunteer runs over with the chair, sits me on the chair, wraps me with that heat warming thing, gives me a cup of tea. I'm just like this. My heart is not to throw up. All Kate and Beth and Jen and my other friends, they rush over to me. Great, you did such a good job, good job. Good. Uh, are you okay? And like all the energy and the noise is like, you know, like too much. And I want, again, them just to leave me alone and be quiet. So again, I'm like trying to mind meld. Go away, go away, be quiet. And they're not getting it. And I realize, okay, Don, you have to use your words. You have to use your words. All I could muster was no words. But they got it, magically gone, everyone gone, even the Swim for Life volunteer. So there I am, all alone, sitting in the white beach chair. I'm, I'm done, I, almost done, I, I swam. Sitting in the beach chair, head between my legs, trying not to throw up, thinking, why did I put myself through this ordeal? Why? And then, of, of course, right, it's to raise money for a good cause, for AIDS and for um, women's health. But also, I realized in that moment, it was for another reason. It was for community. I had just recently moved to Provincetown, and I really wanted to immerse myself in the community life, which is the heart of Provincetown, as we all know. So Swim for Life was a way for me to contribute to my new community while feeling a part of my new community. And so thus, Swim for Life um, became a way that I literally became a wash ashore here <laughs> and uh, earned my stripes as a townie. 
And, um, and in case you were wondering, I was not the last person out of the water. But as I was realizing that, sitting on that plastic beach chair, I was like, all right, I'm going to readjust my goal. Please, just let me be the last 10 out. So waiting weeks and weeks and weeks for the results. They come out online. I'm scrolling my name. Yes. I was the 10th person out of the water. Goal accomplished. Here we got, we got Jody. Hello, everyone. Okay, so it's 2008. I had just moved here. Um, I grew up in Connecticut on Long Island Sound. I am not a beach person whatsoever. I don't like the sand. I don't like the sun. And I really don't like the water. Um, but here I am on Cape Cod, surrounded. Um, so I'm dating this woman, and she is a sea baby. She's born and raised here, literally. Um, she lives in a captain's home, and she swims every day of her life. So we're going to start to get my feet in the water, say. <laughs> uh, we start out, you know, we go down to the, um, the bayside. It's safe. It's not Herring Cove. It's not Race Point. There's not major waves. Okay, I can do this. She's a kayaker as well, and I can maybe get into the kayak. We try that. I'm panicky. I don't know. I'm going to drown, but I'm like two feet off the shore where I can like just go, okay, I'm out. I'm in. I'm out. Uh, <laughs> and, and all the while, she's being very gentle with me. You could do this, Joe. You could do this. You could do this. Okay, lots of reassurance. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like that there's, there's spiders in the kayak. I have like crazy OCD. I don't like dirt. I don't like things on me. And I'm like looking around. I'm like, okay, I could do this. I could do this, you know. And eventually I settle in and I'm like, oh, this is okay. This is good. Yeah, we could do this. Okay. <laughs> My next sort of um, challenge is to, we're gonna go up to Snow Pond. If anyone knows Snow Pond, it's off of six and it's a kettle pond. I don't even know what a kettle pond means, but she's explaining to me with all of her detail how you know glaciers have like melted and it's made this this formation and now it's filled with water and some, you know, you don't know where the bottom is, you don't know how deep it is. And I'm thinking, why do I wanna do this? because I'm in love with this woman and I'm gonna do anything that she asks me to do at this point. So I'm like, great, okay, let's go. And she's very much a skinny dipper. She wants to go naked. I am not taking my clothes off. I'm gonna be in like full like t-shirt, overshirt, boxer shorts, whatever. Um, and so we get there and you know, I'm, I'm, we're on the little beach. It's a tiny little beach and I'm just kind of like, okay, I can do this, I could do this. And I'm like, you know, again, just kind of getting a little bit into the water. And at some point she says, you know, we can swim across. And I'm thinking, across what? And she said, we can swim across the pond. I've done it tons of times, you know, my dad. And I'm like, I don't think so. And I'm, I'm not a good swimmer and I'm asthmatic on top of it. So like, I have like, <laughs> and I had, a, I had a, a stem cell transplant in 2000. So I don't even have all my lung capacity. I have like 40% of my lungs, but I'm still going to be able to do this. I'm going to get across this pond because she says so, and I'm going to just do it. So we start out and there's this 80 year old woman with her daughter that are triathletes that are swimming to um, train. 
and they're like, they've got their caps on and their little slim bodies and their little wetsuits and they're ready to go. And I'm thinking, okay, wow, they're, they're going in. And they're already like halfway to the middle of the pond. And it, to me, seems like it's like football fields long. I'm just looking, we're never gonna make it across there, what? So I go, all right, let's just do it. We're gonna do it, we're gonna do it, I'm in. Okay, so I get past where, okay, so I feel the bottom, I'm feeling the bottom, and then all of a sudden, there is no bottom, but you know, I'm doing whatever I can do, and a little bit is the, this, and a little bit is maybe this, and maybe some of this, but I, again, I can't get the head thing down. And my father was like a champion, like high school, college, diver, swimmer. My whole family swum, except me. <laughs> And so we're in the water at this point, and I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it. Like, I really, like, my life start to flash in front of me. Like, I think I'm going to die here. I really think this is when I'm going to die. And, you know, I've just come through cancer, and, like, I didn't die from that. I survived, but this is where I'm going to die. I just moved here, <laughs> and I'm going to die at Snow Pond. And so I start to freak out and I can't, I'm having a panic attack in the middle of this pond. Literally, I can't get to this side or this side, back to the shore where it's, I could touch bottom or all the way across. And she just keeps saying, Joe, I'll, I'll get you, I'll have you, You'll, you can get on my back. I'm thinking, I'm not gonna get on your back. Look at me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna and we're gonna go down like, like a ship. <laughs> just keep saying and now I'm crying and I'm hysterical and I just can't get my wits about me and she's like Joe just breathe just breathe I still I'm like I'm not gonna make it I'm not gonna make it and I really feel myself at this point I'm like I'm drowning I am drowning I'm going down <laughs> and it's in a, it's in a horrendous feeling if you've ever felt this way in the water I really thought that was I'm done. So I just, I surrendered to it, and I said, okay, I'm going to die, and it's okay. I've, I've, I've made it out of my, you know, long story short, I've, I finally came out of the closet, so, like, I'm okay. Everything that I needed to do in life, I've done, so it's okay that I die right now. <laughs> and, so, and so I see that there's, like, this branch off to the left-hand side, and I'm thinking, if I can only get over to the shore where that branch is, and I can pull myself up and so she's already like you know kind of ahead of me and she's like okay come on we're gonna we're gonna make it we're gonna make it we're gonna make it so I do my little thanks I start doing my little thing and now I'm just like as fast as I possibly can as fast <laughs> and I get to where the branch is and now I'm so exhausted I cannot pull myself up and out so thankfully she comes up from behind me and just gives me this like Ugh! And I go up into the tree. <laughs> and I was never so happy to be like, like face first into this tree trunk. And I'm here to talk about this story and I didn't die, but I've yet to step foot back into any body of water. And so I'm, I pulls, you know, where there's the bottom, I can get in the bottom. Um, and I would like to. I would really like to like go out to Herring Cove, maybe go to the bay, maybe go into another kettle pond. Um, but for right now, I'm just staying put. So I did stay afloat, but I really don't like the water. <laughs> so I can remember being five years old, and he would toss a wiffle ball, and I would try and hit it. And I'd spend forever. And every once in a while, he would want me to pitch to him, and I was like so begrudging of it. <laughs> 
with the unselfconscious arrogance of children and self-centeredness of children was like, why should I ever pitch to you? You've only been pitching to me an hour. <laughs> so that was one thing we used to do. And another thing we used to do is we used to go to ball games. And to me, if I could talk the next morning in school after we'd been to a ball game, it was not a success. Because I wanted to scream so loudly for the team that I would lose my voice. So, and then even as he got older, we could watch baseball, we could talk baseball, it was lovely. One of the nice things in our relationship. Okay, fast forward 30 years. I'm married, I'm looking forward to having children, I'm looking forward to being a kind of father for my children that frankly my dad wasn't for me. And I'm really looking forward to playing baseball if my kids are up for that. So we had two sons, which on the surface sounds promising, but in fact, both of our sons are on the autism spectrum. And so the way that that affected them, among other things, was they were physically not well coordinated. They had zero interest in sports. Um, you know, getting them out, have a catch, do all that stuff, it just wasn't happening. Um, and it was actually sort of difficult, because here I had all this fatherly love that I wanted to extend, and I had two kids that really weren't very capable of receiving it or giving anything back for it. So when they were little, we lived in Connecticut. We used to come up to the Cape. We'd stay in Wellfleet. We'd go to Gull Pond. And one time, as we're going up Route 6, sort of in the Wellfleet area, there are these two huge touristy stores, one on either side. They got the, the $2 t-shirts, but they also have the most amazing collection of floats outside. And so we passed one, and it had a float of a gigantic baseball glove. <laughs> Said Rawlings, it had the fake lacing, it was perfect. So we bought it. And we would take our kids to Gull Pond because it had um, sort of a, 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 not a raft, but like a dock thing that went out like that. So there was only a fairly small area and it was so shallow that the kids could walk around. So it was completely safe, which there weren't a lot of places where we would usually like leave the kids and not be within hand's reach. And so every once in a while, we bought this clumsy pump, compressed air pump, that you had to plug into the cigarette lighter of your car, and it would make a lot of noise and go but it would fill the baseball glove. It took a while, and it was several different sections of the baseball glove that needed to be filled. But every once in a while, it would be a really pretty day. It would be warm. My kids would have run around a little bit, and we would get in this raft, the three of us, we'd all fit, and there'd be a little bit of water in it and sort of the grooves to keep us cool and we'd float around Gull Pond. And that was how I got to play baseball with my kids. Nice, David.
Um, let's just get on to the next. Oh, no, 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 no. Stop the presses. Jay Critchley is going to come up here as, as a man of my hour, and he's going to tell a story. So, Jay? So the 1960s are, were a very baffling time for me. Can anyone relate? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, it, it was one of those times when, you know, you were pulled in two different directions or three or four different directions. And of course, growing up in a family of a large family where if you said shut up, your mother slapped you. And there were, I had eight brothers and sisters. That's a lot of slapping. <laughs> so I ended up going to an all-Jesuit, all-male college in Connecticut. And um, uh, it was tough. Um, but being who I am, I found some ways to explore the world, let's say. So. Um, I happened to uh, be uh, stringing along this, this um, honors student, this honors uh, seminar that um, all my friends were in, but I wasn't because I wasn't a really good student. So we ended up going into New York occasionally, and we would go and see a movie or a play. And this is, you know, this is back when you had to actually go somewhere to see something. So um, I, I ended up, uh, we ended up seeing. Um, Antoniani's Blow Up. Now, this movie is, has been described as a cross between the swinging 60s and the mod 60s. I looked it up today. I mean, I'm like, where did those words come from? Have, has anyone heard the word mod lately? <laughs> so this is a point in time. Um, and so that movie really was a kind of a radical movie and has nothing to do with water. Um, but there was something transcendent and something very cosmic about the movie because there is, there is this scene where all these characters dressed as, as you know, comics and, and, and with costumes on in, in this Jeep, um, just partying through town, and then they stop at this tennis court, and they just there's there's total silence, and people are playing tennis without any tennis balls or rackets. So it's like, And all the people on the, in the Jeep got out and were lined up along the chain fence of the tennis court like this. Yeah. It was cool. So moving forward, I graduated and I joined the VISTA. I became a VISTA volunteer, so I was on my way out. I was leaving the home front of Connecticut this white boy from the suburbs, little town in Connecticut, all Catholic schools. Um, I flew out to, my, to see my friend. He was also a VISTA volunteer in Reno, Nevada. 
I'm like, Reno, Nevada? <laughs> you know, everyone in Reno, and this is back, you know, this is 1970, so um, uh, Reno, Nevada, uh, the first thing I noticed when I got off the plane is that everyone's hands were dirty, like their fingers. You know, they, they've been playing the slot machines. I didn't know what they were at the time. So my friend was at, on this Indian reservation. And so um, I took a, like a bus, I believe, out to this Indian reservation. It's, in, it's outside of Reno. The Shoshone, I think, is the, is the tribe. And he was working there. And he's like, oh, it's so great to see you. And um, let's, let's drop some mushrooms and take a ride out into the desert. We'd done it before, <laughs> not the desert. So, so um, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I just got off the plane. I, you know, everyone on the plane was smoking pot. Well, what's the, you know, people smoked pot on the plane back then. Um, so uh, we dropped some mushrooms, and he, we get into this government issued jeep. Um, you know, it's like the desert, and it's like sun, and it's like blue skies, and we're out in, you know, like, time goes by, you know how it is, some of you. <laughs> um, and um, so we're out, and we're, you know, we, 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 you know, we're way out there. I mean, you know, uh, and so we get out of the Jeep, and we decide to take a walk, and so we're walking around, and, um, Walking around and, you know, looking at the stones and the color rocks and, you know, all those crevices and everything. Um, and then we get back to the Jeep and we re the Jeep could, didn't start. It, it broke down. So here we are in the middle of the desert, stoned out of our minds. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know where, how we were going to, we didn't know anything. We are just, so we started walking. And we're, we're, we're walking along. And you know, we hear this this sound we, we, this in the distance, and it's and then we look and there's this cloud of smoke coming down behind us, and the closer it gets, we realize it's 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 a Cadillac with all of the characters that were in the movie blow up. Looking, you know, um, uh, looking at each other, um, you know, and and no, no sound at all. They didn't make, they didn't make a, nothing, nothing, just like. And they stop, and we look at them, and we're like, they don't say anything. They don't. And we, my friend Emil and I, look at each other, and we're like. I guess we just should get on the, the car, right? get in the car. So we get in the car. No one says a word. They're just looking around, and off we go. We made it home safely. Thank you. All right, next storyteller. Seti to the stage. Seti Dixon. 
got to take it off. Sure thing. That's kind of my thing. I won't move around. Right. I see the tape. Those stories were amazing. I've never done this before, but I've cried about five times since I've been up here. I appreciate everything you guys have done. I was an only child, and I sat in the back seat of my car and sang every song. I knew every lyric. I knew everything, every cadence. I could imitate everything. But I didn't know that I was good. It was just something I did. I was just an only child. That's what you do. But I learned that you either are a singer or you're not. It's in your DNA. For instance, my grandfather sings. My dad sings. He sounds cool. He sounds like Willie Nelson. And then I just recently found out in the 1930s, there was a Belnir clown band that I saw a picture of. Frightening. It's a whole other moth hour. Frightening. So the only time I, the, when I realized I was good at this was the summer before college. I was working in a camp, and it was the first time I actually got stoned. You smoke pot for a little while, and then finally you get stoned, <laughs> if you're wondering. So I was sitting around a campfire, and it was that moment that I got stoned, and everyone had a guitar, and they were playing songs, and I closed my eyes, and I was singing Janis Joplin. And when I opened my eyes, everyone's jaw was like, holy shit, you're really good. And I realized, oh, wow, I was really good. So I went to college that year, and from that year on, I searched out all the hippies and all the freaks that you know, played guitar and could sing, and I hung out, and that's all I did was sing in every single band I could get into. And by senior year, I realized this is what I gotta do. I gotta be a singer, that's what I'm gonna do. So I had my parents over and we had that talk. And I said, Dad, I gotta do this. This is like, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. I realized, and they had never seen me at this point. That's all I've been doing is, you know, playing in gigs, but they never came. I never invited them to come see my gig at fucking Butterfield dorm. <laughs> so I sat down at the restaurant with my dad and I said, I'm, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do the band. And my dad said, I didn't realize that UMass had a singer for the marching band. Oh my God, I was like, this is not going the way it was supposed to go. But I did, I went that way. And I, I, I got into a bunch of bands, continued with the band I was in school. And as a musician, what happens is you, the better you get, you surround yourself with better musicians. And next thing you know, you're playing all these great gigs. I was all across the country for years, playing every college. And all the greatest gigs, you know, every, every benefit, every uh, huge foundation thing, every party, uh, Killington, all the scariest. And this time I was in Martha's Vineyard playing um, five nights a week at the wharf, grueling shit. But I was, I was loving it. I was a rock star in my mind. <laughs> so my thing was Janis Joplin came off from back in that day. And uh, I probably did about 12 or 15 Janis songs in, at, at that time. And... This guy came up to me after the gig and he said, um, I'm a producer and we're doing a, a musical about Janice based on the book Love Janice, written by her, obviously, uh, sister. The auditions are closed, but I want you to come. Come to New York City. I think you're great. You can do this. And so Dave and, and Brian and I went to New York City and I wasn't nervous. This is what I do. What the hell? I got nothing to lose. I already have this thing. And... So we drove to New York and we showed up and I walked into the room and there's about 45 women in there, girls, whatever, and everyone is decked out in beads and velvet. 
They look like fucking Janice. And I'm in this, you know? Oh, shit, Dave. He goes, no, 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 these guys are posers. Yours is the real deal. You got this. You got this. So I wasn't nervous. Okay, all right, you're right. I got this. And I sat and I listened. And you could hear through the window, through the door. And they're singing. You got to do Peace in My Heart and you got to do Bobby McGee. And they're sucking. And I'm loving it. <laughs> so about 12, 15 in, I get my name called. And I go in. I'm going to do Peace in My Heart. Jerry Ragavoy's there. He wrote Peace in My Heart. Laura Joplin's there. There's a crew of people, and, and I'm like a little bit nervous because that's cool shit. So I do like I did here. I took the mic off the thing, and they're like, oh, no, 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 there's the tape and all that shit. And you know, no, I got to. I got to do it. I got to take the mic off. I got to sing. Okay. So I do the Peace of My Heart. Dave's in the, in the room with all the women waiting for me, and he hears me do Peace of My Heart. And then you go do Bobby McGee, and I do Bobby McGee, and I thank everybody, and nice to meet you, Laura. And I go to walk out, and Jerry goes, hey, hey, do one more song. So I break into the old, I just like, fuck, yeah, I just do acapella. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me? And at that moment, Dave was ready to greet me at the door, but he sat back down and waited. Oh, shit, she's got this. It was awesome. So I went through and did, you know, Mercedes Benz, and I left and thanked everybody and got the call the next day, and they said, well, you got the understudy. We'd love you to come to Colorado. We'll pay for your whole thing, and um, you're not in... Broadway, you're not in theater. We don't really want to give you the whole thing, but we'd love you to be the understudy. And that's the moment I realized, I don't want to do that. I want to be my own rock star. That's, it was that pivotal time where I got the confidence that the fact that they actually gave me the understudy is that thing that it said, oh, I'm going to fucking be a rock star. Okay. So I went back to my band, David and Brian, and I said, we're going to do this. And we focused, and we're going to get signed, and we're going to go, and we're going to be rock stars. So we did. We wrote all original material. We, of course, kept this kick-ass Janice thing, because that's always cool, no matter where you go. And we got signed to a little indie label in New York City, and then we did that, and we got signed to a major label, Tower Records, and we were killing it. We were in uh, these teenage shows. You guys know, know the shit. Dawson's Creek, something. I'd never even seen it myself, but we were in that. And we got into television shows and movie soundtracks, and we were walking, and we did the paparazzi thing. I sat next to Leonardo DiCaprio, whatever his name is. I didn't even know who he was. It was awesome. We were total rock stars. And while we were kind of peaking, we were on the radio, things were happening, we were hanging with rock stars. I was a fucking rock star. And I met my husband at that time, kind of in there. Brian was diagnosed with colon cancer, my partner in the music business, and died nine months later. And in that moment, that kind of, I always see it in my mind like this, like this dawn and then boom. In that moment, I met my husband, who looks like David Bowie, and of course I have to have that. <laughs> so, so I get that, and, and, but we do, we fall in love, for real. And, and I get knocked up, is what they call it. And uh, that's what happens when you fall in love. You don't really know the guy, but you're like, oh my God, he's so fucking hot, and you get pregnant. And you realize, wow, you gotta keep this kid. This is like, this is a miracle. So my daughter now is 13, and while Brian was dying of cancer, I was getting bigger. It was this incredible time where I was losing my mind. Um, I had uh, my, I lost my career because he was dying, but the only thing that saved me in the whole staying afloat theme, there is a thing. Because I was pregnant, because I had 
that 13-year-old, saved my life. She saved my life. It was, it, it was unbelievable. She came out, and she has a voice like an angel. It blows my mind. It makes my hair stand on end. And it's that whole DNA thing, you know, the clown band and all that shit. <laughs> but she doesn't even know that she's a great singer. But the coolest thing about it, she doesn't have to smoke pot and figure out because she wants to be a brain surgeon and go to Harvard. And I'm totally okay with that. Thank you. Next one up, James. My name's James. Um, staying afloat. This is literally a story of uh, staying afloat. I used to be a charter boat captain about uh, six, seven years ago here in P-Town. And um, it was late in the season. It was like uh, end of October, mid-November. And these two guys called me and said, oh, we want to go tuna fishing. And I said, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, I'm sort of closing up shop and the weather's not looking too good this week. So, but if you guys are hardy, if you guys feel like you could deal with some shit, <laughs> I'll take you out. You know, and, and the tuna charters, they were like six hours. And, um, and you could t I could tell on the phone that their enthusiasm was an indication of their lack of experience. <laughs> so, but I was like, hey, you know, it's good money. I was like, all right. You know, be at the dock at 6 a.m. And I would have put money on the fact that they weren't going to show up at 6 a.m. Uh, these were party boys. Anyway, they did show up at 7 a.m. <laughs> and, it, you know, it was pretty snotty out. But, you know, not dangerous. It was just uncomfortable. So we headed out. And we got around Long Point. went around Wood End. Then we started went off the race and we just started heading out to the bank and um, and I could tell the wind was starting to pick up even more and I could also tell that these two guys weren't gonna make it I mean we hadn't even hooked a fish yet and I could tell this ain't going six hours which is great because either way you gotta pay so I guess we're out, we're like an hour and a half, two hours, we, the guy hooks the tuna. Like, I don't know, I don't know. It, was a, it was a decent fish. This was a light, what they call a light tackle trip. You're just sort of casting rods, you're not using big stand-up rods. And so he hooks, you know, it was a good, it was at least 100 pounds. The guy hooked it. But now the weather's really starting to get shitty. And I had this, uh, this it's not a big boat, it was only a 25-foot boat. And there was this forward hatch, and I, I hadn't secured it. So it was sort of open a little bit, and the wind was really kicking. And it was starting to get so... Now, meanwhile, this dude's hooked up, right? He's been fighting this thing for about 15, 20 minutes, uh, pretty badly. And a wave came over the bow and just ripped the, ripped the hatch right off. All right, well, that's not the end of the world except for the fact that now you, you basically have a big hole in the top of your boat, and if waves are coming over, water comes into the boat, which 
as we all know, is not a good thing. So I'm just in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, well, I'll just manu I'll manipulate, I'll maneuver the boat and try to keep the waves from coming over and filling up. But at the same time, you know, he's fighting this fish and I got to move. All right, so while I'm thinking this, I turn around and I see the guy, he just drops the rod and just starts puking. <laughs> Similar to how I feel at the moment. Um, just starts puking, he's, he's lost it. Um, so I say to his buddy, I said, dude, you gotta take that rod. You Pick up the rod. So his buddy picks up the rod, now he's fighting the fish. His buddy's leaving over the rail, water's coming in, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, I bet this guy's gonna last five, 10 minutes, and then we can get out of here, we can go home. I'll get my money, they'll have a little story to tell. So this guy goes on for a while, but if you're a fisherman, and there's a fish on the line, no matter what the circumstances, you don't wanna lose it. You want that, you want it, especially a tuna. I don't, you know, uh, tuna, catching a tuna, right? I mean, you hook that thing, the line, you know, the line is just spooling out of that reel. It's one of the most exciting things, if you're into this kind of shit, one of the most exciting things there is to experience. So, so his buddy's doing his best he can, and I'm, I'm debating, you know, is this gonna end well or not? I don't know. Um, now, 20 minutes maybe, I don't know, half hour. Now this guy starts losing it. Like, he starts getting, you could tell he's sick. They were hung over as shit, obviously. Anyway, so I was like, dude, now you gotta take the rod now. Because I, I gotta, you know, keep steering this boat. Anyway, so his buddy takes the rod. <laughs> I'm sorry? So long story short, uh, within 10 minutes, they are both out of the picture. And, I, and I'm being who I, a fisherman in my bones. I grab the rod and I'm thinking, oh, fuck it, man, I'm gonna get this damn fish in. But neither one of these dudes, I'm not gonna put them on the helm, forget it. So I'm just trying to deal with this fish. And we get, and the fish, I do, I get the fish within sight. He comes up, we're seeing color, and then the line snapped. It was gone. Which, uh, I had two feelings at the time. I was like, I was kind of psyched, like, great, this is over. <laughs> we can get out of here. And also like, oh shit, it's the worst feeling in the world. It's the worst, losing a fish. Especially after, well, that wasn't that long of a fight. Anyway, so, but while this is going on, toward the end of it, I'm not really getting how much water had been coming in <laughs> to the boat, right? Even a non-boat person gets that one. Um, we were like, I don't know, two, three miles offshore. Um, but I, you know, I had bilge pumps, but it still, it wasn't a good situation. I said, look guys, <laughs> this, this took no convincing at all. What do you say we head back? Yeah, yeah. Let's head back. <laughs> anyway, we got back. I got paid. Story. Thank you. 
So let's call our last storyteller up to the stage. Last but certainly not least, we welcome Jane. Jane to the stage. <laughs> All right. Looking at my shirt, I was naive. I thought this was an event about Swim for Life. I thought you were all going to be swimmers. I thought you were all going to be swimmers. Um, but no, you're storytellers. I am a swimmer, and I'm going to do my best to tell my story. Um, in terms of staying afloat, um, Jay Critchley's Swim for Life has been, was my bridge from my life prior to my life now. I fell in love with the fourth grade teacher of my nine-year-old son. She's sitting over there. That was a long time ago. We were friends for many years, and we really were friends. And I heard about this place called Provincetown. Linda really loved Provincetown. And I had to wait about 12 to 15 years to be invited to come here. And by the time I got here, it was, I had left my husband. I'm, I was married 27 years. I have three grown sons. And um, I knew I was in love with Linda, but I wasn't ready to admit it. And I came to Provincetown for the first time. And the first thing she did is she took me to Poppy Chaplin's Comedy Hour. Okay, so I'm a straight woman who's a gay woman who's the mother of three sons who is in Provincetown, who hails from the Midwest, who's like, oh, my God. And we go to Poppy Chaplin's, and we're sitting in the back, and I'm halfway down the seat, and she asks who we are, and we said, we're just friends. And she says, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I go through the week, and I'm thinking, I'm a Midwest girl, and I live in Colorado, and I love the mountains, but here's the sea, and oh, my God, will this work? And I'm walking on the jetty, and it's like, this will work because it's as beautiful as Colorado, and how's this all going to work? And then I see a little postcard for the Swim for Life, and I'm a swimmer. Next year, I think we have to go and count the ribbons I have in our little memory box, which we collected through all those years that we weren't lovers, we were just friends, but it's the postcards and it's the talismans and it's the memories, and in that box are all the ribbons I have collected through the years of the swim. And Linda and I were back there, and I think either next year it will either be my ninth swim or my tenth. I love, I love, love, love the swim. The point I'm trying to make is Jay Critchley's Swim for Life was how I stayed afloat as I bridged from my straight mommy of three boys to falling in love and marrying the fourth grade teacher of my nine-year-old son to coming out to leaving Colorado to all of it. It was something I understood because I was historically an open water swimmer. And it was something that I could latch onto. Someone earlier said, I think it was you, 
Remind me your name, who did the swim last year. Dawn, who did the swim. It was a way to be a part of community. Granted, I had a little bit more experience. And someone else talked about someone swimming over you. That happens all the time in open water swimming. Um, but you provided me with a way to say, okay, I think I can come out. I think I can talk to my 80-year-old parents. I think because I can come to the swim. The next year we came, we stayed at Land's End. We, and it was a great romantic weekend for us. And I've been doing it ever since. And I have owned it, and I have been very selfish about it. This is the first year that I'm willing to invite someone of my family to join me. And it is the godparents of that nine-year-old boy that Linda was the teacher of, who is now about to turn 29, married, lives out west, by the way. But thank you, Jay, for keeping me afloat during my most arduous and complicated journey. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theater Company, Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us live at facebook.com forward slash Mosquito Story Slam. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on sadcloud.com. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Mm-hmm.